This week in science. It is World Space Week, October 4th to the 10th. Okay, this is a big thing. It's a huge deal. Uh, it's an international celebration of science and technology and their contribution to the betterment of the human condition. It's a wonderful thing that we celebrate every year all over the world. Uh, those dates, October 4th, is significant because it's the launch of the first human-made satellite into orbit uh, by the USSR, uh, Sputnik, fellow traveler, uh, which was 1957. So that's October 4th, 1957, launch of Sputnik, which caused a shitstorm. It was great. Uh, and then the 10th is actually the date of the signing of the Outer Space Treaty uh, in 1967, which we actually just talked about recently, which was the Declaration for the Peaceful Use of Space, or whatever. Other notable things, NASA began operations on uh, the 1st of October in 1958. And uh, also, just a couple days later, October 5th, 1958, Neil deGrasse Tyson was born. So, happy birthday, Neil. We love you, man. Uh, that is it. And this just... I found this out after the fact, but we just so happened to be <laughs> making an astrophysics show. So, you guys you guys want to get into some astrophysics? Let's... Fuck it. Let's go do that. Welcome to Mindwave. This is Jenner. Exciting episode. Today we're going to get into some nerd shit. Uh, co-hosting today is my buddy Paul. Paul. Hi, how you show. doing? And we are talking to somebody very cool, doing very cool work at one of the coolest places in the world. Uh, let me make sure I get your title right. I know you have uh, a couple. Richard Lane, uh, astrophysicist, postdoctoral researcher at, oh boy. Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile. Is that roughly close? <laughs> That's pretty close. Not bad at all. And then you actually had, there's another one with, um, yeah, with Atacama, a, a, right? Exactly. Yeah, University de Atacama, which is in a town in Chile called Copiapó in the north of Chile. So you guys have probably seen this before, like way up. This is one of these crazy observatories. It's like super high up in the mountains. There's like no moisture in the air. It's one of the best astronomical observatories on the planet. Uh, and this guy is fortunate enough to hang out there and work there and do some uh, very cool stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited. Let's get into it. I guess uh, start off with with your background, how you came into this work, and um, what exactly it is you do down there in Chile. Right, yeah, so the backstory, it's a long story in some way, I suppose, but I'll give you the short version and 
when I left high school, I decided to do a chemical engineering degree. But less than a semester in, probably four months in, I guess, I, I just felt like I was back in high school and I just didn't enjoy it. So just before the final exams of, for the first semester, I dropped out, which is you know something that happens. And mm. I went and worked in a bar. My brother worked in a bar restaurant. It's, it's a restaurant and a bar and a nightclub. And it's recently been uh, uh, scheduled for demolition to replace it with something else. But it, it's, it was like an, an icon in the, middle of, in the middle of Sydney, right near the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. And uh, so I worked there for quite a long time until I decided that I just didn't want to be doing this anymore. I, I basically, I don't know, I just, I felt like I was on autopilot every day and I wasn't enjoying myself that much like I was before. I guess I was getting a bit older. I was 24 and I was like, yeah, I want to do something with my brain again. So I looked through the, the university admission guide in Australia and there was a, a degree at the University of uh, Macquarie, Macquarie University. It was a Bachelor of Science in Astronomy and Astrophysics. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty interesting. I'll, you know, I've always been interested in, in astronomy anyway. And, you know, I did pretty well in maths and stuff at school. And, and I thought I'd just give it a go. So I applied. And uh, they gave me a, a position. I, you know, I got into the degree, and and I went from there. And and I, then I, after my undergrad, after four years of undergrad, because I did it partly part time, uh, I had a year off. Then I decided I wanted to go back and do honors, which is like a one year masters sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then uh, I did well enough in that to apply for a PhD position at Sydney University. And uh, I had known a guy, his name is Geraint Lewis. He's a Welsh guy originally who was an astronomer in Australia at different places. And I did, while I was doing my honours, or maybe while I was doing my undergrad, actually, I did a, a winter, a couple of weeks winter scholarship in the winter break with him. And he was, you know, obviously impressed enough with my my work during those two weeks that he said that if I wanted to do a PhD, that I should look him up when uh, when I finished uh, with my honours. So I looked him up and he was at Sydney University at that point. And so I applied to do a PhD with him and got accepted, got a scholarship and everything. And uh, yeah, and, and I went away and did it. And so I, that was, oh, uh, and then I was, when was that? 2010, I finally finished my PhD. And I applied for jobs all over the world, including, you know, the UK, Australia, Chile, obviously, China. I uh, got a couple of offers. One was in China, one was in Chile. And my wife had worked in China previously a few times and decided that there's not really somewhere she'd necessarily want to live for a long time. So uh, I took the job in Chile, and here we are. Beautiful. And you're actually on the uh, Apogee 2 team, is that correct? Yeah, so I've had a couple of different jobs since I've been in Chile. The first one was uh, a regular postdoc position in a town called Concepcion in the south of Chile. And after a few years in Concepcion, I applied for a job after five years. I applied for a job in Santiago at the University Católica, as you mentioned at the start. And so, uh, and that was to, yeah, that was to work with this Apogee team, which is an Apogee, it's uh, an acronym which stands for the Apache Point Observatory, which is an observatory in New Mexico in the US, Apache mm-hmm. Point Observatory, Gaval- uh, sorry, Galaxy Evolution Experiment. That's what Apogee stands for. And Apogee, the, the point of Apogee is to get spectra of, as well, as many Milky Way stars as possible to, well, the, I mean, the over 
the sort of umbrella idea of the whole project is to work out the the evolutionary evolutionary history of the Milky Way. Yeah, it's been described as kind of like galactic archaeology. Is it a fair yeah, assessment? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's been called that because, I mean, that's a whole field of astrophysics is galactic archaeology, and it's it's called that because it's uh, well, you you look at the galaxy as it is now, the galaxy meaning the Milky Way, and you look at it as it looks now, and but there's all sorts of little remnants of other things that had built the Milky Way up to what it is today. Little dwarf galaxies, for example, that are in orbit around the Milky Way. There's a couple of those that are the famous ones, the large and small Magellanic Cloud. Those are dwarf galaxies in orbit around the Milky Way, but there's been a whole lot of them, and there are a whole lot more. There's about 150 or slightly more than that, I think, dwarf galaxies around the Milky Way, and they occasionally interact with the Milky Way and build up with their interaction. The stars get stripped off the dwarf galaxy and end up as part of the Milky Way. So yeah, that's why it's called galactic archaeology is because you can you can look at the things that made up the Milky Way to what it is today and uh, and sort of work backwards to see to see where it came from, how it ended up being the way it is today. Yeah, that's crazy. So um, at Apogee to about, this is part of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, correct? Yeah. So Slo- the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is SDSS, which is the well, I don't know, initialism, I guess, um, is a, a big project that's been going for about twenty years now, and it started off as an imaging survey, just imaging the Milky Way, looking at. at, at well, as much of the entire sky as possible, taking images of all of the stars that that you know that they could, uh, mm-hmm. but all from the northern hemisphere, all from New Mexico, uh, and eventually that became well. I mean, you can only take images of so many patches of sky before you cover the whole sky. So eventually, it uh, was decided that it would become not just an imaging survey, but a spectroscopic survey, and I can explain spectra if you would like. As opposed to what? As opposed to imaging. Absolutely, yeah. Wherever you want to go, man, you're the expert. So <laughs> this is your show. Okay, I'll take it. Um, so it's yeah. So it's, I assume the listeners probably know that if you shine white light through a prism of glass, that you get uh, well. I mean, the light breaks up from white light into a rainbow. The red, orange, red. Sorry, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Uh, different colors. And so if you get starlight and you shine that through, uh, well, effectively a small glass prism, then you get the the rainbow of colors from the starlight. But because stars are made up of interesting things, lots of different elements, then the light has, in the rainbow of colors, you see dark and light bands at very specific frequencies. And with those frequencies of, of those dark and light bands, you know that, for example, there's two bright orange, bright orange bands in uh, in the or, yeah, in the orange, two bright orange bands, which is, for example, sodium. So if you see that, you know that there's sodium in that star, and you can do that with a whole lot of different elements. And in fact, hundred well, basically all of the elements that the that the star contains, and so you can work out what the star is made from for one thing, but you can also work out a lot of other things like the age of the star. You can work out its surface gravity. You can work out how far it's moving away from us or towards us. Uh, and yeah, a whole lot of other things. That's temperature. 
Uh, and so that having all of that information means that you can do lots of things. You can do a thing called chemical tagging, which means you can you can look at each individual star and say, okay, well, all of these elements exist in this star with this particular ratio, for example. And over there in another part of the sky, there's another star that also has these specific ratios of elements. Uh, and so those two stars quite likely could have been born in the same nebula originally. And so this this kind of chemical tagging is really useful for, well, working out the evolution of the Milky Way, for example. Yeah, and that's that's the that's the cool thing about adding this observatory to this uh this survey is that you now have pretty much the entire sky, right? Right, exactly. So from Apache Point you can get sort of two thirds or something of the sky because of the way the earth rotates and uh, around the sun and you know you only can only see half of the sky effectively from half of the earth and so yeah from apache point in the northern hemisphere you can see something like two-thirds of the sky and eventually uh the the pi the principal investigator of apogee decided that he wanted to build the same spectrograph the same instrument uh, and put a new one but exactly the same, but in the southern hemisphere, so we can cover the southern part of the sky as well, and and that way we can actually fill up the entire sky. And the the good thing about having this in the south, in the southern hemisphere, is that well, there's lots of interesting stuff in the southern sky that you can't really see from the northern hemisphere. One of those things is the center of the galaxy. You can see it from the northern hemisphere, but it's really low on the horizon, which makes it difficult to study. Um, and also uh, the, the large and small Magellanic clouds, which I mentioned earlier, satellite galaxies of the Milky Way, plus a whole lot of other things. But the great thing is you can, well, one of the great things, at least, is you can see the center of the Milky Way. And that's that's a really interesting thing to study. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the um, SGR A-star, Sagittarius A-star, the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way, is a fascinating object, and we've we've learned quite a bit about that just in the last couple of years here. Uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, it sure is. The uh, in SGRA stars, I mean, as you said, it's the the black hole at the center of the Milky Way, and there's, I mean, Hubble Space Telescope has been looking at it for a while, or at least looking at stars nearby, figuring out their orbits around the central black hole and things, and using that to well weigh the black hole basically to work out how massive it is. And well, a bunch of other things. There's also there's also you know, uh, clouds of gas that are in orbit or may maybe on collision courses with the Milky Way. Oh, sorry, with the central black hole. And and if eventually that gas cloud collides with the central black hole, then we'll learn more and more about the black hole. And I mean, yeah, there's I mean, there's plenty of things. There's also lots of globular clusters that are associated with the 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 bulge, which is the the central part of the Milky Way. The, the, the bulge of stars that surrounds the black hole effectively. And that, mm. um, again, there's a lot, and looking at all of these things, for example, these globular clusters, you, we, we're getting a pretty good picture, well, slowly, slowly building up a pretty good picture of, of, what the, of how the Milky Way became to be the galaxy that it is. Yeah, that's nuts. Are you still here, Paul? I feel like we lost you. No, I'm here. Okay. I'm, Did you I'm, want I'm, to jump in there, buddy? I'm I'm just listening. I'm I'm enthralled. <laughs> yes. Well, you are you are one of our resident science nerds, so I, I got you on to co-host this episode. I'm sure you have some uh, 
areas you want to poke around in? What are you thinking? Um, I'm not really quite sure at the moment. Um, kind of every all of the bullet points I've had in my notes, uh, Richard kind of covered rapid fire there. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, no, we'll go back and do deep dives. Uh, that was definitely a broad, a broad overview. Oh yeah. Of uh, yeah. the whole thing, kind of just condensing it into a uh, something that people can get their minds around because right, right. astrophysics, the universe, the cosmos, this is some of the craziest shit out there. Right, so right. We're, we're going to backpedal a little bit and go deep deep dives on, on some of this stuff. Yeah, but the uh, but the whole idea of the, the whole spectrograph thing, it's, it's really interesting to me. I'm actually just starting to dive in and learn about that in some astrophysics classes that I'm taking and uh, learning how to... Uh, you know, match something from how to take a spectra, a spectra from that we record here uh, or in a nearby galaxy and then take that and use a similar one in a further away galaxy. And uh, I'm learning the math, how to actually go and figure out if it's a blue shift or a red shift and tell how quickly it's moving towards us or away from us. And it's it, it's just really interesting stuff. I mean, you can use the spectra for a lot, it seems. Yep, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, yeah, it's not just about looking at the motions of the stars, but also, like I said before, you can, you can even work out the, the surface temperature of the star or the, the, the surface gravity of the star. It's, yeah, it's impressive what you can, what you can get from just uh, looking at the spectrum of a single star. Yeah, that's yeah, crazy. Um, one of my notes here, I'm not sure if this is accurate or not, but uh, the Apogee Southern Spectrograph, it says it can observe 300 stars at a time. Does that sound right? That sounds exactly right. Okay, yep. Yeah. So the, the way the thing is built is that it's there's a big aluminium plate that's about 80 centimeters across. I don't know what that is in feet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Neither do we. It's fine. <laughs> or inches or whatever. Uh, it's probably, I don't know, 30 inches across, I guess. I'm guessing. Um, and... It's got 300 precisely drilled holes in, in the plate. And what we do is we, uh, when we're observing for the survey, we plug 300 individual optic fibers, one into each of those holes. And each of those holes corresponds to a position on, of a single star on the sky. So that when we put that plate onto the telescope, we, and that the telescope is collecting light from a specific field of a specific location on the sky, each of those fibers receives the light from a single star. And so then we, the light goes through those optic fibers down into the spectrograph. It goes through something like a glass prism. It gets split up into the rainbow of colors on the CCD chip. And then from the image on the CCD chip of the spectra, then you can, you have all of the, yeah, all of, well, you have the spectra on the chip. And so then you have effectively an image of the spectrum and you get 300 at a time. And then what we do is we, I'm going to go observing in about a week, um, and I, and we have probably seven fields we can observe per night, which means seven plates, which is seven times three hundred stars. So we end up with well, twenty one hundred stars nice, for the night. Nice, yeah. Damn, that's crazy. I wasn't aware that they they were using any that you actually physically have to block out just to narrow down. So it's an actual physical barrier that's blocking out other stuff to get a single light channel from a single light source 
Well, I mean, it's not exactly blocking it out. The, the, the aluminium plate is there specifically to, to plug in the optic fibers into a very specific position because the stars okay. are obviously all in a very specific position on the sky. And so we have to, or the people who are designing the plates have to uh, basically through some software that's been written, it calculates the positions of the stars for a particular field. And you can look through a, a list of all of the stars that are if of a certain brightness uh, in between certain magnitudes, magnitude meaning the brightness of the star. And then you, you can choose, okay, well, I want this list of 300 stars from all the stars in that field to be observed on this plate. And so then we send off the coordinates for each of those stars to the, the company that drills the whole, these very precise positioned holes at, at a very specific size so that you can plug these optic fibers into them. Right, right. That was going to be my next question because, like, we we think of the stars as not moving, but they they do actually move. So, how how often does that need to be, or how I guess how often do you order the plates? Is well, that something that you have to keep doing on a regular basis. Yeah. So, I mean, the stars themselves move throughout the night, obviously, because the Earth is rotating. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then. Uh, but the stars themselves move with respect to each other. Like I think that's what you were getting at. They do move with respect to each other a little bit, but because stars are so far away, very few of them move far enough in I don't know a year or several years to make any difference to our positioning. Uh, and where we get our positioning for our stars from is actually a survey that was completed in. Uh, I'm going to get this number wrong. I think it was completed in 2002. Uh, which is a long time ago, but the accuracy of the stellar positions is still good enough for us to be able to do what we do. So the stars, most stars anyway, don't move very fast. There's there's one particular star called Barnard's star, which moves, it's well, it has the the fastest proper motion, which means the motion on the plane of the sky, uh, perpendicular to the ground. Um Sorry, sorry, not perpendicular to the ground, but in the plane of the ground. Um, and it, it uh, I don't remember the numbers, but it moves significantly faster than any other star. And so if we were trying to observe that star, we would have to figure out its position much more accurately. But for most stars, they don't move fast enough to really make much difference. All right. Relative to each other, because that's, that's another other. thing people don't really think about. In spaces, like, yeah, we have the big disk of the Milky Way that's all rotating as one singular thing, but then within that disk, there's movement of the stars, you know, yeah. over over long term. Exactly. You know, like gal galactic time scales. We will, if we come back to this planet in 100,000 years or something, the constellations will look, I don't know how different they'll look, but you can actually plug plug the math in and see. Yeah, um, and we know the proper motions for quite a lot of stars. And so, yeah, you could if you wanted to. And somebody probably has already done a, you know, an iPhone widget or something to do it that you can just skip forward a million years and see what the sky would look like from, from the Earth. But uh, it wouldn't look, I mean, it would look different, but it wouldn't look very different. I would think you would probably still see, you know, Orion looking the same, for example, unless, unless yeah. one of the stars had exploded in a million years. Yeah, there you go. That's another one. New stars dead stars it's a very it's a very crazy place up there man this universe we happen to live in that's why i'm and studying it because it's fascinating i fucking uh wouldn't um 
I love it. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to ask, uh, would, uh, would any projections really be, I mean, how high of a reliability could a projection of what it's going to look like, say, in 100,000 years really well, be, considering how many different, you know, the stars dying or supernovae or, you know, the physics kind of changes constantly just because of different things that are happening and things that we don't even think to guess of or things that we don't that we don't foresee that are going to happen you know i mean even small things like uh you know comets or something coming into our view you know it it just comes out of nowhere sometimes so i mean well that's true i mean there was only when when was it it was it was this year i forget exactly which month but this year there was a an asteroid that flew past the earth that we didn't see until after it had already gone past its closest approach to the earth and it got to i think it was seventy thousand kilometers from the earth which is oh actually maybe less than that but it's something like that anyway but something like a, a fifth of the distance to the to the moon which is extremely close to the earth when it comes to you know large asteroids when you're worrying about these things hitting us hitting us but i mean we know if talking about like uh, you know <laughs> Proceed with caution. <laughs> so we have been having some technical difficulties. Uh, it works that way sometimes when you're uh, talking to people around the world. So we we were talking. Um, fuck, this is like ten minutes ago now. Uh, we were talking about yeah future future projections. Yeah, so um, for where the universe might might go, which is difficult because we don't even know where it's really at now. Um, relative, like telescopes are time machines so we are actually looking back in time uh and this this was something uh, a quote um from william Her william herschel that was uh one of my favorite references in cosmos talking to his son john explaining that you know it's a sky full of ghosts and uh you know we could very well be looking at they could have died a long time ago and we just don't even know so that's one of the one of those things about uh you know time and relativity that really trips me out is it that there could be new stars or there could be some of them might have died? We don't know. Well, right. And mystery. we really don't know. And one of the one of the near the one of the, the nearby stars that's probably gonna end up exploding in the next this is the problem, you don't know, but thousand years or something, is a star uh, right near the Southern Cross, the, the constellation of the Southern Cross. And it's oh I'm gonna I've just completely blanked on what it's called now. Um, but it's uh, it's throwing off lots and lots of gas. It's a very massive star, and you can see it throwing off lots of gas. But there's a decent chance that because of how far away it is, that that star's already exploded by now, and we just haven't seen it yet. Right, right, yeah, yeah. That's my. Are, is is this a red giant? Yeah, exactly. It's some some sort of red giant. I don't uh, know like the stellar classification or anything, but it's some kind of red uh, giant. Yeah. The one that I I remember being referenced is one that's like oh could explode any day or it might have already exploded is Betelgeuse. Yeah, that's one um, of them for sure. Yeah, that's um, another one. Or Beetlejuice, as the Americans say. I prefer Betelgeuse. Yeah, Betelgeuse sounds, sounds cooler. more exactly. It sounds way cooler. <laughs> Otherwise, it sounds yeah. like it's a it's a, a a silly movie with uh, what's his name Michael Keaton in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, would that have uh, been the brightest star in the Southern Cross? The brightest star in the... No, no, it's not actually in the Southern Cross, the one I'm thinking of, and I've just completely blanked on the name of the actual star, so I apologize for bringing oh, it okay. up. Um, but uh, but it's, a, it's an interesting star because it, it shared a, a big... 
well, it it's basically it's got a big sort of well a nebula around it, and it's and I'll probably remember the name of it in a minute. And it's it's a red giant star, and then the nebula is a sort of dumbbell shape around it, and uh, and it's, from memory, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of dust in that dumbbell because the the star itself has dimmed from our point of view on the Earth uh, recently and also brightened more again recently and then dimmed again. And it's because there's so much dust in this this dumbbell-shaped uh, nebula. And I've, I've just completely lost the, the name of the star out of my brain. Sorry. Yeah, it's, <laughs> got, it's kind of like a, like a halo of uh, gas and dust and, and shit just kind of surrounding the object. Yeah, exactly. But it just happens to be in this particular dumbbell shape. And if you've got a even small telescope, maybe a six inch, 10 inch diameter mirror telescope, you can actually see the shape of the, the nebula, the dumbbell shape. I mean, it's small, but you can see it. Hmm. Interesting. I have not been able to get into too much astronomy here. I have a little telescope that my dad got me, and it is very difficult to use. That is that is a an art form, a skill to master for sure, especially like manual little telescopes. Yeah, I mean, I, I started off before, when I was doing my undergrad degree in, in Sydney. I, I just wanted to learn more about the night sky and, you know, what's up there because I've never really done that before. Occasionally, maybe through some binoculars of my dad's or something, but I'd never really looked at the night sky you know at least not through a telescope anyway and uh so i bought myself a telescope and a 10 inch diameter mirror newtonian reflector type thing and uh, yeah it's amazing what you can see with a a fairly small telescope yeah that's a i gotta invest in that at some point because i'm a big i'm a big astro nerd and i would love to start getting into astrophotography and shit but like that's going to require some some software and robotics to really to be able to lock on to stuff because I am not that skilled. Yeah, well, I mean, I I'll, I can point you in the direction of a couple of friends of mine who do a decent amount of astrophotography and uh, and they can probably give you some tips. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a while before that's in the budget, I think. But you know, some something to uh, strive towards. Yeah, something to aspire to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. So let let's talk about. Um, the this astronomical i was going to say astrological because i'm scatterbrained uh (laughs) this astronomical observatory in chile because it's this is a huge one right if i'm not mistaken this is the same um this is the same observatory that caught the first supernova right 97 uh, or 1987 a now you now you're stretching my knowledge of the observatory um i don't know for certain which observatory first caught 1987a um but the one that i work at or the one that where the apogee experiment uh, the, the the apogee instrument is on a telescope called the uh, dupont telescope at la Silla. no it's not it's not la Silla at all it's at las campanas observatory and that's the that's the place that i go for about a week every month to go observing for the apogee survey and um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's certainly not anywhere near the biggest observatory in Chile. There's a, the, the biggest one is probably Paranal, which is where the, the VLT, the very large telescopes, uh, are, uh, are there at Paranal, but there's, there's lots of observatories in the North of Chile. There's, I, I mean, I don't even know exactly how many, but six or seven decent, obser- decently big observatories. 
and uh, and they've all got you know the, a, an array of different telescopes for various different things for imaging or spectra or planet finding or whatever it happens to be, and yeah, and some small telescopes that people have found supernova and 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 various other kinds of discoveries. So I mean, no matter where you go in in the north of Chile, you'll run across a, an observatory with some some impressive equipment. Nice, yeah. It's a, it's saying uh, it doesn't say which Does telescope, that have but it's to do with location, like why there are so many there. It's just a kind of really suitable location for being able to see more of the stars. Exactly. That, that's from uh, the atmospheric conditions, right? The it's because it's very dry. Right? Yeah. Very so there's a few up. things that you exactly. There's a few things that make a good observatory. One is very dry. The other is very high up. Uh, because the higher up you are, the more or the less atmosphere you are looking through when you're looking out into space. Uh, and the, yeah, the drier it is, the less water vapor there is to distort your images as the, as the light's coming down through the little bit of atmosphere that there is left. Uh, and that, I mean, and both of those things are really good. And Ch the, the northern parts of Chile on top of the, you know, the mountains in the, in the Andes, uh, are perfect for it. And there's, I mean, there's other places in the world that are equally as good, like, for example, Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Uh, also, Mauna Loa has some observatories in Hawaii, uh, some telescopes on it in Hawaii as well. But the great thing about Chile is that there's a, a huge, long mountain range. It's not just a single mountain, like Mauna Kea in Hawaii is a single, right. a single volcano. Whereas mm -hmm. in the north of Chile, or all the way down the whole of Chile, is the Andes Mountains. And you can put telescopes... I mean, the reason they're in the north, of course, is because that's where it's dry. But uh, and yeah, and so there's a whole lot of a whole lot of telescopes and a whole lot of observatories up there in the north. But the the one big problem with Chile is that there's a lot of earthquakes, so everything has to be Ooh. built to to yeah to not fall over when uh, when you get hit by an earthquake. Oh yeah, and that's got to fuck with your fuck with your uh, observations too if you're getting you know like especially when you're trying to narrow down on something so so tiny in the sky so far away so precise and then you get a little earthquake and it just jiggles yeah. around and it does <laughs> i don't even think of that we uh we observe i mean maybe once every three or four months there's an earthquake while we're observing and uh and you see the we have the uh 14 guide stars which are brighter than the, the stars that we want to get science from and they're just bright stars that we we have uh, of those 300 optic fibers that I mentioned before, uh, 14 of them are uh, well, they're for, gui for helping guide the telescope to keep the telescope pointing in exactly the right place. And so what we do is we find those stars with the guide fibers, center those guide stars in the guide fibers. And then once those are centered, then all the science stars will be centered in the science fibers too. And so once and yeah, and suddenly you hit an earthquake, and we have this. We have a a, a little monitor of how much signal we're getting for uh, for each of the exposures of the guide camera, and you suddenly see the the guide stars just jump out of this out of the guide uh, fibers, and the the flux monitor drops to nothing, and it's like ah uh, okay earthquake. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I I did a quick uh, a quick little Google search. It said yeah the um. Uh, 1987A was discovered there at uh, Las Campanas, Las Campanas Observatory. It doesn't say which. Um, it doesn't say which telescope. Right, right. No, I well, I would have to, I would have to search for it myself. But that's that's kind of cool. I, I don't, I don't yeah, think no, I right. actually ever knew that that's where it was discovered. So thank you for telling me. 
Yeah. Oh, learn something <laughs> new every day. <laughs> yeah, you really do. I love it. What What is it like working up there? Is Is it is it like you have to bring like oxygen tanks and shit? Is no, it like one of those extreme it's environments? It's actually not that high. It's surprisingly not that high. I mean, some of the observatories are very high. Like I mentioned Mauna Kea in Hawaii. That's 4,200 meters, uh, whatever that is in furlongs. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it, that's high enough where you really do need oxygen or you have to carry oxygen with you just in case you get serious altitude sickness because some people do. And I've been up there and I didn't have that problem. 13,799 feet, 779 feet. 13.7. Okay, there you go. But at Las Campanas, it's only 2,700 and something meters. So it's actually not very high, but it's high enough that some people get some, you know, small issues with the altitude, but it's it's certainly not 4,000 meters or anything, which is where where you really should be starting to carry oxygen with you. So, I mean, the, the paramedics up there probably have oxygen bottles, but I've never actually know, known anyone to need one. But what, what's incredible about it up there for me anyway is that it's just, it's so dry. It looks like you're on Mars or something. It's, it, everything is just rocks. I mean, it's not the sort of desert where there's any sand. It's rocks mm-hmm. and of very, you know, various different sizes all the way down from, to pebbles to boulders. But it's just, it's absolutely like a really a Mars scape. It's phenomenal. And I, I really love it for that. And it's beautiful in its own way, even though it's, you know, not beautiful, lush, green type nature. It's just, it's this, it's this amazing Mars scape. It's phenomenal. I really, really love it. Yeah, I noticed when I was in Colorado, uh, the highest point I was at was about 9,000 feet, which is what, like 2,700 meters or something here. I just looked at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Comp- comparable. Yeah, but... Um, yeah, I, I realized that up at that point, I mean, there were trees and things still, but they were just tiny. It's like things, they were really sparse and everything that was growing was very small. And I mean, the only the only wildlife that I remember seeing that high were birds, you know. It's, it, it, it's, it seems like it's a very different place compared to a few thousand feet lower you know yeah definitely and what i also find amazing up at at least at las campanas and la silla and various other observatories in the north of chile is that is the the amount of wildlife that is there i mean yeah there are birds there are some birds up there but but you get uh there's wild donkeys up there there's wild foxes up there there's a a little animal that looks basically like a rabbit and a squirrel squished together which is called uh, um, I've completely forgotten the name of it, but it's it's one of my favorite Chilean animals just because they're so cute. Um, there's also a vicuña up there, which is like a kind of like a deer, but with a kangaroo's face. Um, I don't know. There's a whole lot of stuff up there. It's amazing how much how much wildlife there is, considering I don't know where they get their water from because there just isn't any, and it hardly ever rains. It's it's amazing. This is odd because I search Chilean mammals and. Like every single picture looks like a rabbit and a squirrel smashed together. <laughs> uh, what are they, what's it called? <laughs> no, I mean all these different species. There's the Philotus, Darwin's leaf-eared mouse, Arbithrix, or Abrithrix, oh. Comet Dingo. Daegu? Not any of those. Yeah, they all look like rabbit-squirrel mixes. <laughs> Ab- Abrithrix. Darwin's fox. Oh, those are cute. We've got some really interesting ones there. Really interesting. I didn't even think of 
asking about wildlife, but we are we are very nerdy and very into wildlife. That's, so that's, kind, that's kind of my interesting. Area yeah, of interest. Mostly herpetology, but any kind of zoology really really gets me going. Oh, well, the thing I was thinking of is called the viscacha. I just looked it up myself because I'd completely forgotten the word of it, the name for it. How do you spell that? Viscacha. V-I-S-C-A-C-H-A. Oh, my gosh. Do people keep these as pets? Uh, not as far as I know. Oh, wow. they're, just, they're just wild up there. And there's lots of them. There's families of them. There's a family that actually lives in the wall of the uh, the telescope dome building at the DuPont, which is where which is the, you know, the telescope I work for or work at. And so you come out at night sometimes and you, with your head torch on and you'll see these little, these viscaches running oh, around. <laughs> Very cute. Cute. Oh, so they're actually in the um, Chinchillidae family. Oh, there you go. So, so they're, they're related to chinchillas, but they, they do look like uh, funky little rabbits. So they're not, I thought it was a lagomorph. Yeah, I thought it was a lagomorph of some kind. They're rodents. They are adorable little rodents. They are adorable, <laughs> adorable rodents. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Ah, uh, super cute. We just we just total sidetrack. <laughs> talking yeah, about total sidetrack. That's cute, okay. Cute rodents. <laughs> yeah. Uh, space. <laughs> the final <laughs> frontier. Oh man. So what is what's? <laughs> so what are you working on? on right now you said you're about to go out to do a another observation what's what's your main area of focus well uh, when i generally when i head up to las campanas for observing i observe for the apogee survey i I Mm -hmm. don't generally do it for my own science but that's not always the case sometimes i do it for my own my own data collection as well so various things um uh Basically, the one of those things is galactic archaeology, which we talked about earlier uh, with the evolution of the Milky Way. I really also like looking at uh, the... There's a, a type of galaxy called a, a spheroidal galaxy, which is fairly self-explanatory, which means basically it's a spherical ball of stars. It's not a flat disk of stars like, say, the Milky Way is. It's a, mm-hmm. just a huge spherical ball of, of stars. And... There's some of those that are quite isolated from anything. Um, and interestingly, at least some of them, you can, you can determine the mass of these things by using globular clusters, which are a much smaller spherical ball of stars, uh, maybe a million times the mass of the sun in, in one of these globular clusters. And they in orbit around almost every galaxy that we look at. And, and that has to have something to do with the the history of the, the evolution of, of all galaxies, because these globular clusters, are, you see them in basically all, or in orbit at least, around all, uh, all massive galaxies. And, but you can also, because they're so far away, when you're looking at an external, a, a large isolated elliptical galaxy, spheroidal galaxy, um, the globular clusters are so far away and the galaxy is so far away that the globular clusters themselves look like a, a, a a point source of light. They look like a single star, basically. And so what you can do is you can get a spectrum of the whole globular cluster as a point source. And then you can use that to work out the dynamics of the globular cluster system around the around the spheroidal galaxy. And with that, you can determine the mass of the galaxy at different radius distances from, from the galaxy. And if you do that, some of the galaxies themselves look like they should be, or 
not no okay I'll, I'll rephrase that they don't look like i was going to say they look like they should be dark matter free but that's not quite true they they look like they should have a lot less dark matter than they need to have to be explained by the uh, the the cdm the cold dark matter theory of the way the universe well became to way the look the look the way it does and that's interesting because if some galaxies don't have as much dark matter as others, even though there's the same amount of visible mass in those galaxies, then why don't they? Because the whole idea of dark matter is that it, the dark matter, the mass of the dark matter should also follow the mass of the visible matter. There's no reason to think that dark matter mass and visible matter mass should congregate in different places. And so if these galaxies really do have uh, less dark matter than than the theory predicts that they should, then well, that's basically that's a problem for the dark matter theory. So that's an interesting thing to look at, just on its own, completely separate to anything to do with the Milky Way and galactic evolution. Yeah, I was uh, I was not aware of this this phenomenon. That doesn't sound that does sound like a very interesting thing to study because. I mean, dark matter, and we might want to break that down for um, the general audience. Basically, there's there's not enough stuff there in the visible, the part that we can see, to hold these things together. They should have spun and flung apart a long time ago. Dark matter makes up huge chunks of this stuff, and we don't actually know what it is, but it's fucking everywhere. But if it's not evenly distributed, if it's it's more concentrated in some places than others, and if you if you're saying like these um, these globular clusters, if they actually have less than well, um, is represented the, uh, elsewhere in the galaxy that's, or elsewhere in the universe, really, that's that's a, a fascinating question. We got to find out what's going on there, man. Yeah, exactly, and that's why these isolated galaxies, these isolated elliptical galaxies, are so fascinating. I mean, it's one of the reasons. I'm sure there's plenty of other reasons, but that's the reason that I find them fascinating. And not all of them are like this. It's, we've only found, or me and me and some of my co-authors have found at least three that that look like they don't need any dark matter to to uh, explain the the dy- dynamics of the globular cluster systems. And if they don't that doesn't that's not to say they don't have any at all but but within the models that we use they don't need to have any to to explain the dynamics and if they really don't have any then yeah that's that's a problem that needs well we've got to figure out why yeah yeah um, isn't the uh, whole existence of dark matter kind of it, it's just an inference based on like perceived gravitational influence right is is that kind of correct yeah, yeah. I mean, the original reason that it was hypothesized in the first place was that, as Jenna said just before, that if you look at the the velocities of galaxies, especially uh, in spiral galaxies like the Milky Way or Andromeda, the nearest large spiral galaxy to the Milky Way, that these galaxies are rotating too fast for the amount of visible matter that's there to hold them together. They, if if all, if the only matter w- that was there was the stuff we can see, you know, the gas, the stars, then these galaxies should just rip themselves apart because they're rotating so fast. They shouldn't they shouldn't be able to stick together the way they do. They shouldn't look the way they do. And so there was a the hypothesis from I mean a long time ago, and I should probably know the dates, but I don't remember exactly when eighteen something. There was a um. It, it was hypothesized that there's this invisible matter that's there that's holding these galaxies together. And 
now that we know a little bit more and we've got things like computers where we can do simulations, the idea is that, well, okay, if there's dark matter uh, is the sort of dominant amount of matter in every galaxy, then how do we, why, how does the universe look the way it does now based on what we know about how much dark matter is in the universe? And is that dark matter cold, hot, warm, something in between? And cold meaning that the particles of dark matter themselves aren't moving very fast. Right. Hot meaning that dark matter particles themselves are moving very fast. And yeah, so if we do simulations now based on, say, hot, warm, and cold, different temperatures of dark matter, you end up with a universe, a simulated universe, that looks very similar to our own universe, the real one, uh, if the dark matter is cold. And so now we think that probably the dark matter is cold and it is everywhere and it's a huge proportion of the matter in the universe. So that's basically where we're at. Right, right. Um, my point in asking was, um, is, is it possible that the kind of seemingly, well, how, how there's seemingly less of a need for dark matter in these certain universes, because that'd be explained away by some, uh, some other force acting on the gravitational force or changing the gravitational force, like black holes or anything similar? Or, I mean, the answer is basically, yes, it's de it is possible, but it's getting less and less likely just because we're learning more and more about, we're observing more and more and we're learning more and more about the universe. And so there was, there's a, a few ideas that are out there and the, the most famous of those is called MOND, M-O-N-D, which stands for Modified Newtonian Dynamics. And basically what that says, and there's a whole lot of other modified gravitational theories similar, but, but slightly, you know, slightly tweaked. Um, and the idea is that the gravitational interaction works the way we think it does on short distance scales with, with high accelerations. So if you're close to the Earth, the acceleration is 9.8 meters per second per second. Um, but if you get out past, you know, a long, long, long way away from anything, uh, which is where most stuff is. I mean, the you know the Milky Way galaxy, and I I don't know, like one of these large elliptical galaxies that I was talking about, the isolated elliptical galaxies. Um, those things have very, very, very little gravitational influence on each other because they're so far away from each other. And so the idea is, once you get far, well, once the acceleration due to gravity gets below a certain level, which is from memory, it's been a little while since I've looked at this number, but from memory, it's uh, 10 to the minus 10 centimeters per second squared. I have a feeling that's right. 1.2 times 10 to the minus 10 centimeters per second squared, I think. Um, so very, very small acceleration. Once you get below that, then gravity stops working the way we think it does on at, at where, where gravity is quite strong and starts behaving well, it doesn't drop off as one over the radius squared anymore, maybe, for example. It might drop off as one over the radius cubed or one over the, one over the radius to the power of four. And if, if that's the case, if gravity behaves that way, then you can explain certain things about dark matter just by using this, this modification of Newtonian gravity. But the problem is that there's so many places that you can look where it looks like dark matter is necessary, uh, but for, uh, well, I'm trying to think of examples, but you can, 
there are well there's one thing called the bullet cluster which listeners can look up if they want to bullet cluster and it's it's two galaxies well it's a cluster of galaxies where some galaxies have flown through another galaxy cluster and they've basically they've dragged all of the all of the mass or the majority of the mass has been dragged out of the center of the cluster but there's the but the center of mass of the cluster at least the majority of the mass of the cluster is still in the center of the cluster. So it, I'm not really explaining that prop very easily. It's not easy to explain maybe without visual aids, but it's worth looking it up because um, if, if, for example, this MOND or one of the modified gravity theories was able to explain everything we see around us, like the bullet cluster, like uh, the rotation curves of our spiral galaxies, like the isolated elliptical galaxies I was talking about earlier, then, then one, if there's a modification of gravity we can, we can come up with that explains all of those things at the same time, then yeah, that may be the answer. The problem is that modified gravity theories generally explain one or two things or a you know, handful of things, but then you have to modify it a different way to explain other things. And so you're basically not explaining anything better than you are if you're invoking dark matter. So, I mean, dark matter looks like it's the best option so far, but it's not saying that it's absolutely, definitely the only thing going on. Probably dark matter is a thing. Maybe it's not, but it's also not impossible that gravi the gravitational interaction actually does fall off differently to one over r squared, the further away you get from a gravitational object. Uh, but it's, but no one's been able to prove that that's the case. Right. And we don't, uh, to, be, to be entirely fair, we don't actually know that it's matter necessarily. It might not even be matter as we know it because it doesn't interact with light in any way whatsoever. It also doesn't uh, interact with any other kind of matter in any way whatsoever, except through gravity. Yeah. Yeah. So th this is a trippy thing. We could be, we, and this could also just be a scale thing. So like you look at Newtonian gravity which works on a very specific scale but then once you get up into big time scale you need general relativity to step in it could just be a next level thing to that like if you take general relativity and you try to scale it down you get newton's equations you can't go down to the quantum level on this shit this is the, we're, we're talking like the absolute edges of of what is known within theoretical physics but is that is that a fair thing to say that like this could just be one level higher than general relatively <laughs> general relativity some new understanding of of gravity could solve this without invoking any kind of uh, ghost particles or or anything like that am am i totally off base no i mean i don't think no you're not totally off base and and that's kind of at least one of the things that this these modified gravity theories are trying to do. They're trying to mm. say, oh, look, dark matter is not a thing. Instead, we just don't understand gravity correctly. And that's absolutely possible. I mean, the, the thing is, though, that ever since 1915, since you know Einstein came up with this amazing new description of how gravity works, or at least how it's, you can describe it, um, it it's, it's passed every single test that's ever been thrown at it, whether it's you know, the deflection of stars by the solar disk, by the sun, you know, the gravity of the sun during an eclipse or this thing like the bullet cluster I mentioned or uh, the, the pulsars uh, getting slower as they, as they age, Pulse, the spinning of a, of a neutron star beaming out an electromagnetic beam so that we can detect it as a blip every time it passes the Earth. 
uh, and you can you can tie you can uh, well yeah time the spinning of those things very very accurately with well pulsar timing arrays and things specific type telescopes that do this stuff and and you can measure how slow how much I mean how they're slowing down and that all of this stuff is all completely consistent with Einstein's general relativity which means that if something if if there's something wrong with general relativity it's got to be something we haven't been able to look at yet or haven't discovered yet i mean the other thing that's an, another good uh, proof of einstein's general relativity is gravitational waves which we discovered you know the first time a couple of years ago and oh, now we've yeah, discovered yeah. lots of things that are emitting gravitational waves so those things are real all of the tests that einstein's relativity has been put under has has passed so you know if we are going to come up with something that's that's that dis- the that's a better description of gravity then it's it's got to i mean I, Relativity has to also work in that oh, framework, right, 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 like right, right. New, like Newtonian has to work within general relativity. Otherwise, within, it's, it's, yeah, within the regimes exactly. that, that they work in. I mean, yeah. you try you try to take either of them down to the atomic level, and they don't make sense. No, you know, you try to apply general relativity to the singularity at a center of a black hole, and it breaks down. So that's what I was really getting at. Like I, I know, like for sure, one hundred percent, like every everything. Everywhere we've tested general relativity within that regime, it works 1,000% of the time. Like, our GPS satellites would not work if general relativity wasn't true. What I was getting at was, like, is is there possibly some higher regime, some, like, further step up beyond to where, like, each one is true within its own regime? Like, Newtonian, is it makes sense with here on earth but if you try to scale that up to you know even even like the planets you know for the whole solar system you run into some wonky stuff and then you know larger you got to invoke general relativity i don't know where i'm even going with this but could there be i guess yes some like some deeper understanding you know of gravity i mean i i think so i i it's not impossible that that general relativity isn't the complete picture of gravity it is possible for sure i mean but but no one's come up with a better solution yet and that's what it's it's part of what these modified gravity theories are are at least trying to trying to do and if they do then why well i mean that'll be the next Nobel prize instantly i would think if someone can describe gravity better than general relativity does but we well just have to wait and see that's the thing man we know all kinds of crazy stuff about the universe, we've learned most of it just within the last couple of decades, but it is still a tiny fraction of what there is to actually know. Uh, and that's that's what's most mind-blowing, because we're sitting here talking about being able to look at a star, put the light through a prism, and tell you what that star is made of. And if you would have told this to somebody, fuck, what, 100 years ago or something, they'd be like, what? You're crazy. Right. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, thing- it's... T- Tiny sliver, man. Absolutely, a tiny sliver. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're still learning. I mean, if if we knew everything there was to know about astronomy, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> so you know, um, but I mean, maybe Paul can be the next person who, with the the classes that he's doing, he can figure out what's the next best thing after general relativity. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of math practice. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, tense tensor maths is not a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Don't don't look at me. I I am useless with the math. I <laughs> I am mathematically Ill- illiterate. I have an, an inquisitive mind, but I am horrible with math. 
I thought I was useless with math, but I'm getting better the more I practice. I'm realizing I learned Funny how that works. I, I just kind of learn differently than how it's normally taught. I, I have to deconstruct it in my own head and take it kind of backwards to figure out how it works to actually have an understanding of it. So it just takes me longer. That's all. <laughs> yeah, we'll stick with it. If you enjoy it, that's the main thing. Right. Yeah. It's well, the thing I enjoy is knowing things. I, 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 I have a really, really bad, uh, distaste for, uh, not understanding something. It, it just bugs me. <laughs> well, if you haven't read it already, there's a book by Richard Feynman called the pleasure of finding things out. Okay. Okay. Ooh, I'm going to look it up. Book plug. And it's yeah, just—it's not really a plug of any re, for any reason, except that I love the book. It's uh, and I love well, I love Richard Feynman. He's like my, well, you know, my my physics idol crush or whatever. <laughs> oh um, yeah, he's yeah. he's a superhero. We have a book club on the show. Anytime somebody mentions a book, that gets plugged into our into our book club. Ah, and they're okay. not like affiliate links or anything. We just want to direct people to uh, to these books. So I will have to make a note to put. Uh, to put that in there. I love Feynman. I don't know if I've actually, I've heard like excerpts and stuff from it. I don't know if I've actually heard that book all the way through. So I might have to put that on my reading list as well. Please do. Yeah. It's, it's up there with my favorites of his and it, what Paul said just before about, you know, he just loves learning stuff and exactly. It's the pleasure of finding things. Oh, out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, actually, I am looking in the library database right now to see if that book is here. because It sounds like a great read. It damn well better be. Feynman is a fucking legend, man. Yeah, he really is. I love watching his um his lectures and his little bits. I I've heard him give that the the lecture on that where he talks about he was talking to with a creationist or something somebody saying, you know, like look at this flower. You know, like how could if you're trying to break it down to just the molecules or whatever, like the, you're taking God's creation, something beautiful, and Feynman had this argument i'm not articulating it well at all but it's just like does that take away from the beauty of the flower to know you know by the biochemistry that's going on inside how how it's the cellular structure like you only gain more of an appreciation for something the more you find out about it you never lose that that wonder and that that joy of uh you know, just understanding how things work. So, I completely no, agree. Yeah, I used to, uh, uh, I have a friend who used to, well, I guess argue was the right word with me <laughs> about like the beauty of the night sky when I started doing astronomy as a thing. And uh, as I will, you know, the, and she would argue with me that knowing all that you can know about the stuff that's up there, the stuff that you're just admiring the beauty of, just takes away from the beauty of that thing. And it's like, well, my argument is, no, it's exactly the opposite. The more you know about what's going on up there, it makes all of that so much more beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Get on it, man. And get on it, listeners. Head over to mindwave.media slash books. <laughs> we'll I just love that. I mean, I can just go through and check like that. I mean, this book is like not even a hundred yards from where I'm sitting right now. It's, it's just awesome to me. <laughs> Handy. <laughs> yeah. Well, Richard, we got to close it up here pretty soon, but did you have any, um, any final thoughts? Did you have any profound cosmic truths you wanted to drop on the listeners? <laughs> well, now you're putting on the pressure, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Uh, uh, there's, uh, yeah, no, no divine cosmic truths coming from this end, I'm afraid. I just like to, well, find stuff out. I'm just fascinated by the universe, love learning about it, and love being on a mountaintop with a big telescope just staring up at the sky sometimes.
Sounds amazing, man. It really does. It is crazy. And um, you are officially our resident astrophysicist now, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so if anything cool happens in the universe and we need an astrophysicist to get on the show to break it down, you're going to be the first person we call. So <laughs> I'm very happy to be that person. I really am. Very cool. Well, uh, thank you very much for making the time to hang out with us today and just barely, barely start digging into... Uh, we're going to go way deep down the Astro Road, guys, at some point. But, uh, you know, with a lot of these, we kind of need to start off just like broad view and then we're going to go deep. I did the same kind of thing with, um, you know, like the ag and the bio and, and all that. Like, let's start basic and then we're going to get really 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 deep there was something happening um some new discoveries in high energy astrophysics that i was making uh notes about that we have to get in, in into and cover something with um like neutron stars and star quakes or something there's so much cool shit happening yeah. up there we so, could we uh, could seriously talk for 10 hours and, and not even scratch the surface i know <laughs> i know so uh yes we will definitely have to get you back on uh, but yes, thank you again very much for coming and hanging out with us. And uh, man, we will talk to you soon, I'm sure. Thanks very much for having me. All right, take care. You too. Our website is mindwave.media. You can find everything you need to know about the show on there. All the links to our socials. We're doing YouTube stuff now. Check it out. Uh, we're doing Twitter stuff. Follow us at Mindwave Podcast. Always helpful to leave a rating and review if you like the show and you want our AI algorithm overlords to uprank us and start recommending us to people. Uh, that would be cool. You may have noticed, we don't run ads on this show. We're really fucking proud of that, because ads are fucking stupid. And if you're listening to us or watching us on YouTube, we're not monetizing that shit either. And if you appreciate that, become a friend of the show. <laughs> become a friend of the show. Our Patreon tier starts at a dollar. You can help us make this shit happen for you. Uh... And it's a great way to just say, fuck the ads, fuck corporate podcasts. I'm just kidding. I love a lot of you, but uh, no, for real. If you like the show, uh, help us keep the lights on. Mindwave.media, all the way down at the bottom. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Studio Stargazer. Copyright 2019.